0: I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. I'm delighted to have me, with me today Professor Ray Tallis. Hello, Professor Tallis.
1: Good afternoon. Hi.
0: Hi. Ray is a former gerontologist and a professor of geriatric medicine at u- Manchester University and he is a fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences for Research into Strokes and Epilepsy. But over the last few years, he's devoted his attention to philosophy, writing what I would call bio-philosophy. That is, philosophy particularly, but not exclusively as it relates to aspects of our experience as conscious organisms. As well as being a columnist for Philosophy Now magazine, Professor Tallis has recently published the book, Aping Mankind, subtitled Neuromania, Darwinitis and the Misrepresentation of Humanity. I think it's a much-needed critique of variously popular bad ideas, which we'll get into, obviously. In it, he systematically obliterates the common but erroneous ideas that the mind is just the brain and that human beings are just animals. I would venture to suggest that anyone who now would credibly want to argue for the identity of the mind and brain and the mere animality of human beings must first address the ideas Professor Tallis presents in his book... Uh, As I say, I'm glad that someone has stuck their head over the uh, parapet about these issues, uh, Professor Tallis. Uh, So first, uh, let me ask some introductory questions to introduce you to the audience. Professor Tallis, your background is as a doctor and in medical research. What led you off the straight and narrow into philosophy?
1: I think I began off the straight and narrow. and Uh In a way, I was interested in philosophy long before I was interested in medicine. I mean, around about the age of 15, I started getting interested in philosophy. And I only decided to be a medic when I was in my much later teens. All right, so it's been a a lifelong
0: thing that you've only recently specialised as you've had the time, maybe. How does your background as a medical practitioner and a scientist inform your philosophical interests?
1: It gives me huge respect for biological science Uh and for that great monument of the human intellect, which is... Neuroscience. OK. Um, it has also made me aware of the difficulty of establishing robust, corrigible, objective, connective truths, which is what science is about. So in dif- the difficulty of getting things right, in other words. Getting things right uh, and not falling, um, as it were, victim to confusing opinions, anecdotes and intuitions y- for solid fact. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you do spend a, a lot of aping
0: mankind... Uh, just basically trying to set uh, right a lot of ideas that um, have become popular but are basically erroneous. Uh, What are your
1: main interests as a philosopher, may I ask? Um, Certainly philosophy of mind and, more broadly, ontology. Which means what? Thinking about the kinds of things there are, the fundamental stuff of Mm -hmm. the universe. I'm very interested in philosophy of science, of course, and in philosophy of language. There are areas in which I've written... Books. And they join together in your books in a, in, a, in a coherent way. What drives you as a philosopher? What is your motivation? Three things, really. One is a sense of overwhelming joy at the great mystery of things, right. and the peculiarity of the fact that I carry the office of being Raymond Tallis, which is the most mysterious yeah. curious thing. Like right. so what makes you, you, individually? The, the very fact that I am. Uh-huh. Secondly, uh, it's a feeling of despair which I s- certainly had when I was uh, a teenager when I declared myself a biochemical materialist I have the kind mm-hmm. of views that Richard Dawkins propagates now uh-huh. and I believed that we were simply pieces of matter that free will was an illusion that any satisfaction I might take in things uh, was really misplaced or t- satisfaction mm-hmm. I took in my own achievements and that uh, really life was spiritually empty so there was okay. there two opposing views. But there's been a third driver, which is anger. Anger right. at garbage, basically. And there's two loads of garbage I particularly uh-huh. focused on. The first was the garbage put forward in the humanities in the 80s and 90s uh-huh. that went under the name of theory, in which they used characters like Derrida and uh-huh. Lacan to um, approach literary, literature in a totally different and, to me, misconceived way. I mean, Derrida and Lacan were both terrible philosophers and yeah. third-rate linguists, but he certainly—they man- certainly managed to wow them in humanities. And so, yeah. for a long time, I uh, was preoccupied with overturning uh, that particular approach to literature and indeed to the world and to our. Way we make things intelligible. I can understand that anger because it's like, how
0: could they get away with speaking such garbage and then be hi- highly respected for it? And obviously, there's a lot of garbage being talked about the the mind and the brain and and human mm-hmm. beings, which you attack in in, in your book. Which uh, is my second lot of garbage, of course, which is also oh, sure, yes. theme today. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, in in reference to what we're going to be talking about, what what was your area of scientific research before
1: um, before when you, before you were writing philosophy exclusively? Almost exclusively in neuroscience. Exactly. I trained in neuroscience in Oxford, had a brilliant tutor with whom I argued endlessly about the relationship of the mind and the brain, and he was a superb neurophysiologist, uh-huh. but also extremely patient and understanding man okay. who was willing to listen to a 20-year-old giving out about the philosophical limitations of neurophysiology. But my main area of interest has been in stroke epilepsy, Mm -hmm. and in neurological rehabilitation, helping people who've got neurological damage to recover from that damage. So neuroscience is my, if you like, home territory. Right. So so you're eminently qualified to talk about it, I would say. Um, (laughs) Thank you. In light
0: of all this, what is the purpose of your new book?
1: It has a very specific purpose, but behind that, it has a much larger purpose. Uh I'm a humanist and an atheist. Right. And I think we have an interesting task ahead of us, which is to make sense of the kind of creatures we are uh-huh. in, a post, in, in, in a post-religious world. Mm-hmm. Having set aside supernatural beliefs, one has to think, what is the alternative? The incorrect alternative is to think you move from supernaturalism to naturalism, to say, OK, we're no longer above nature, as it were. Yeah. Now we must be part of nature, and we have to be understood to be okay. a- animals, hence biologism. And I think there is a third way, which is to say that actually we began way back when as pieces of nature, but by biological means, we've escaped nature. So, so your, your book is basically trying
0: to find out what our place in the world is given in, a post, uh, in a
1: post-Darwin uh, situation, culture. In a post-religious situation, okay. really. And I, I guess it, it isn't as positive as trying to find our place uh-huh. in the world. It's more what John Locke said, which is to remove rubbish that lies on the path to truth. Yeah. Because we won't start thinking about these things properly until we set aside ideas. get in the way of our thinking about them properly.
0: Okay. Uh, The subtitle of your book is Neuromania, Darwinitis and the Misrepresentation of Humanity. We'll discuss neuromania and Darwinitis in more detail soon, but for now, could you briefly tell us what they are and how they differ from neuroscience and Darwinism,
1: please? How do you pass from neuroscience to neuromania? Very simply, Uh neuroscience acknowledges that neural activity is a necessary condition Of every aspect of consciousness from the slightest tingle of sensation to the most exquisitely Mm -hmm, constructed mm -hmm. sense of self. Neuromania says neural activity is not only a necessary condition of consciousness it is a sufficient condition of consciousness because it is consciousness. It equates consciousness with the brain. Indeed it's the mind-brain identity theory Mm -hmm. so that all my experiences actually are identical with neural activity and that's the beginning and end of it. That's neuromania. Okay. And Darwinitis and Darwinism, how do they relate? Darwinism is a fine and great theory right. which explains, as far as to my satisfaction at any rate, how the organism Homo sapiens came into right. being. Darwinitis thinks that it not only thinks that Darwin not only explains the organism Homo sapiens, but also people. So in other words, it, it, it thinks that Darwin explains not only our biological roots, but our cultural leaves. Okay. And that's where I part company from Darwinitis. All right. Uh, You may have covered this, uh, but why do you particularly care about these issues in particular? Because they are aspects of biologism, Uh which is the notion that we are indeed just animals or pieces of nature. Uh And that, to me, is the main obstacle to our developing an accurate, true, comprehensive sense of what we truly are in a post-religious world. Okay, so you want basically to get us to get our thinking right about this in order to understand ourselves well? I'd like to th- be able to think, about, well, I'd like us to be able to think of ourselves clearly. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of things I know about myself, such as that I indeed am born an organism. Uh-huh. I exit. Am I going to cough? Is that right? Uh, QED. I, Q, QED. <laughs> I'm born, exactly. I'm born an organism, and as a doctor, I couldn't, it couldn't escape me that many of the things that happen to us can be understood very well in biological terms. Uh-huh. I will die an organism, and I will, you know, my post... Uh, my posthumous um, fate is very similar to that of all the other primates, but it's what happens in between that mm-hmm. I find interesting. And there's hardly anything in human life in which we haven't utterly transformed the biological givens and made them into something else okay and we'll be getting into that soon uh
0: but before we get into neuromania in more detail first we're going to play a track this is a chestnuts by joe hill from the album chapters Hi, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. I'm here with Professor Ray Tallis, and we're discussing his new book, Aping Mankind. Now we're going to focus for a while on Professor Tallis's critique of Neuromania, which, as I understand it, and you might have just heard, is the pervasive and rather incredible contemporary fashion for saying that the mind is just the brain—an idea which is sometimes also called materialism. So, Professor Tallis, what's wrong with the idea that the mind is the brain?
1: You can see very quickly what's wrong with it. And if you think about something absolutely ground for, like perceptual experiences. Mm. Supposing I'm uh, looking at a yellow object. Right. I experience yellow. Uh The neural activity in my brain has none of those properties that yellow has. Right. Now, some philosophers have tried to get round this as follows. They say, well, actually... Neural activity and experiences are identical, but it's the same thing seen from different aspects, yeah, from different a, angles. That's called the double aspect theory. I understand. The Indeed, or dual aspect theory, whatever uh-huh. you like. Or it's two things described at different levels. Right. Of course, that has a very straightforward error in it. In order to have the notion of two aspects, you have to have the idea of something being looked at from different angles. So, you in pro- other words, you incorporate the very notion of consciousness in trying to explain okay. the difference between neural activity and experiences. So that's the sort of ground floor problem.
0: If I could just um, get you to really boil it down, then, I mean, if you could encapsulate it in, like, a, maybe a phrase or something, what, what is your basic
1: justification for saying that the mind is not the brain? How would you put that in a phrase? Well, I've already given you one justification. Uh, there are quite a few others. I, I, I don't think it's a simple knockdown argument. One builds up a case. Yeah. So the, the next thing is to look at something called intentionality. OK. If I'm looking at glass as we speak now, as you can see. And I, it, it, the straightforward understanding of it, how it is that I'm aware of the glass is that light interferes with the glass. Right. That interfered light enters my eyes, and it tickles up my occipital cortex, and it, neural activity goes down the visual pathways. Okay, and, and somewhere then, there are tingles that correspond yeah, to my... Your, but your brain processes the information from the outside world. Well, I think using the words process and information, you're already personifying the brain, which is a problem uh, which we may okay. come to. But... So we've got an easy causal chain between the glass and the neural activity in my occipital cortex, mm-hmm. or wherever. Which is somewhere in your brain. Somewhere in your brain, absolutely. The next question is, how is that activity about the glass? More in particular, how is it about an event that happened in the glass causally upstream from the neural activity? What do you mean by that? That is to say that if, if, if we think of what happens in the brain as an effect of events happening in the glass... mm mm-hmm. So what happens in the brain is an effect, right. what happens in the glass is a cause. Right. We now have to have this effect reaching back up to its cause, going causally upstream. Because it's about the water in the glass. Oh, it's about the glass. It's yeah. about the, the events that were associated with the light interfering with the glass. That's how I see the glass. So you don't think that m- things like brains, material things, can have this intentionality... They can't. And if you, if you think about the physicist's understanding of matter, uh-huh. causal chains make total sense. As it were, the reverse the, the reverse causation uh, of intentionality doesn't make any kind of sense. So in other words, we have a physics of how the light gets into the brain, right. but we don't have a physics of how the gaze looks out. And that brings us... Yeah. I mean, that, that, that brings us to, I think, a much more profound problem with the whole idea of the identity of consciousness and events in a material object, which is the material objects don't have appearances in themselves. And let me give two reasons for, th- for saying this. Take a rock. Uh-huh. What is the appearance of a rock? Well, it doesn't have a particular yeah. appearance unless you look at it from a particular angle. Right. You can look at it from the front, you can look at it from underneath, you can look at it from the back. Okay. All those appearances are different, but none of them come into being without an observer. So appearances require observers. So how does this relate to not saying that the mind is the brain, the appearance uh, Simply thing? because consciousness is about appearances of things. Right. So, for example, if I think my mind is brain uh, neural activity, I have to propose that the brain somehow, a material object, right. confers an appearance on another material object, which is, say, the glass that I'm looking at. OK, so
0: let, let me see if I got this right. You're basically saying that the reason why the mind is not... The brain is because mental things like experiences have certain properties that material objects cannot have, like uh, they can have uh, perceptual content and intentionality,
1: as you call it, or have, or confer appearances. Would you say that's right? Or well, to put another way around, that there's nothing within matter that confers an appearance on itself. In other words, but, but the brain is a bit of matter, so uh-huh. we have to uh, we have to say this brain confers an appearance on this glass. That's why I'm aware of it is is that not you simply defining
0: the situation so that there's a distinction between i mean could if i was a materialist as i called could i not say well yes of course uh in the brain uh the brain does confer appearances that's what consciousness is
1: well in in which case if it does that it cannot behave in any way like all the other objects in the material world okay subject to the laws the physical laws that physicists see and, and let me just approach this f- from, a, from a, a, a further angle. You'll be familiar, perhaps, with what Galileo said and Locke after him, that secondary qualities don't exist in the material world. We'll, they have, were, we'll have to explain. What I'll so. explain what secondary uh-huh. qualities are. Um, they have to be put in by consciousness. Right. What are secondary qualities? Things like the feeling of warmth, uh-huh. the colour yellow. At loud sound. All experiences, sensations are secondary qualities. Absolutely. Everything that makes the very fabric and stuff of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So it is straightforward philosophy of science to say that all the things that constitute the content and fabric of consciousness, appearances, don't actually exist in the material world. Yeah, you don't that's not
0: what science measures it doesn't measure uh, the warmth of something it measures the
1: connecti- the movement of molecules or something like that i think that's a very good point yeah. and in a sense because science is a, and that's why of course galileo said yeah. that you know the, the language in which uh, the, the the language in which nature speaks is is mathematics yeah. i mean it would be interesting to go down to whether you thought think that distinction was the birth of science but Well, um, chronologically, it coincided roughly with the birth Uh of serious mechanical science, Uh a la Galileo. But just coming back to this point, supposing you and I are looking at a table... Right, which um, we are. We are. And we're arguing about it. Uh You you say it's a big table, I say it's a small Uh table. You say it's a, a bluish table, I say it's a greenish table. We can set aside our differences and by simply doing measurements that actually say this table is two by two and this table has got light which is a wavelength of 400 nanometers or whatever. End of discussion. But what has happened is we've reached the objective scientific viewpoint by setting aside the phenomenal appearances over which you and I were arguing. So basically you're
0: saying it's basic to science understanding of what matter is that matter is distinct from consciousness. But then the problem comes because these days uh, the neuroscientists are trying to make consciousness a part of matter, so they're going against the tide of science in a way.
1: Absolutely right. In other words, they they, they don't take their physics seriously. I think if they took the notion of matter as seriously in the way that physicists do, they wouldn't be able to generate consciousness out of a piece of matter called the brain.
0: Yeah, so they're, they're basically not being consistent with their own thinking in a way.
1: If you think of physics as the parent of neuroscience, then the neuroscience is betraying its parent. If it pretends, it it can give an explanation of consciousness.
0: Okay. Um, What's the difference between correlation, causation and identity in understanding how the mind and brain are linked? And why do those differences in concepts matter?
1: Yeah. Those differences are absolutely central to the Uh difference between neuroscience, which is good, and neuromania, which is garbage. Right. And uh, if you think of what happens in a typical experiment uh, when you're trying to look at, say, experience neurophysiologically, I shine a light in the subject's eyes and there's some activity that appears in the the occipital cortex, that part of the brain associated with vision. That is a brilliant correlation and you see exquisite correlations in neuroscience between experiences and what happens in the brain.
0: Yeah, everybody's probably seen pictures where the brain is lit up when there's some activity going on that that they've been scanned and seen the brain light up when they're looking at a picture of uh, someone they love or something like that. So that's what we're talking about here.
1: That's an example I'd love to come back to uh, if you have an opportunity okay. to grant. But, uh, so that's an obvious correlation, right? But correlation doesn't mean causation. Two things can be associated without right. one being the cause of the other. Right But um, we, we go further than that. Correlation is not identity. Two things that are correlated okay. are not identical. So that's why keeping in mind the difference, particularly between correlation and identity will make sure that we embrace neuroscience and we reject neuromania. Okay, so basically just because two things go together don't mean that they're the same thing,
0: and this crossing this boundary is where the neuromaniacs have gone wrong, maybe. And
1: actually we could say a little bit about how poor the correlations are, of course. There's huge controversy. First of all, there's been a a tremendous move towards localization Mm. of of activity in the brain which is supposed to correlate with particular experiences or propensities or wetter. You mentioned love just earlier, and we can come back to that. And uh, could you give me an example of what you mean by this localization, please? Yep. Well, let, let me give you a particularly spectacular right, example because right. it's one I really enjoy yeah. uh, dismantling. About a decade ago, Semir Zeki and his colleague Andreas Bartels decided they would find out what love was. Right. In fact, they did work on love brackets romantic, love brackets maternal, okay. and love brackets um, uh, erotic, and not erotic. I think of disinterested love. Okay. And what they did is, Jan, you've alluded to already, so I'm very glad you've given me the opportunity to jump in on this one. Um, They took a series of subjects and put their heads into the fMRI scanner. And I'll say a bit about fMRI scanning. I said put their heads, they were still attached to their bodies. Right. (laughs) An fMRI scanner is a very clever device that essentially is able to measure neural activity in a waking human subject without causing uh, any harm in a non-invasive way. It doesn't directly measure neural activity. It very crudely measures changes in blood flow or changes in blood oxygenation associated with this neural activity. This is basically the thing where you've got the colourful brain scan pictures we're we exactly. talking about. They have been massively doctored to right. produce those colourful things. Right. So there they are. They put the heads of these subjects in the functional magnetic resonance imaging scan and they then showed them pictures of people they were just friendly with. So they might show me a picture mm-hmm. of, you know, me a picture of you and I would have a certain amount of neural activity. Then they show me a picture of my wife whom I love and mm-hmm. there will be more neural activity. They subtract one from the other and say the essence of love is the difference between that kind of neural activity. Well, I have to say, first of all, those correlations have been described as voodoo correlations in a recent publication in quite a respectable journal. They're very doubtful that they actually hold up uh, at the level, high levels of correlation that have been described. But perhaps they may do. Yeah. But the second thing is what, what, what it does with love. It reduces love to a stimulus. Right. Well, love isn't a stimulus. Even yeah. those, who've, who've been it, well, those who've been in love, or even those who've read about it mm-hmm. in a book, or even those who've read about it in a crayoning book, will know that it's much more than a stimulus. It's much more than a state. It is a very complex thing. It's about not being in love at that moment. It's about feeling jealousy. It's about feeling awestruck by this person. It's about imagining when you're going to meet them. It's about having imaginary conversations with them and so on. But you can see how... These experiments, which reduce something as complex as love, which belongs to the selves in a community of minds, and try to reduce that to a stimulus, yeah, give people the impression that love can be can itself be reduced to activity so in the brain.
0: They look. They say no. Oh, look at this picture, and we'll see what areas your brain light up and we're saying you looking at this picture is what is called love whereas of course love is infinitely more complicated than that so they're not actually measuring love they're just measuring the response to this picture yeah uh, and, and you saying this is a widespread thing in in neuroscience that people do this sort of in, in, thing?
1: in, in some uses of neuroscience particularly when they use neuroscience to explore psychosocial phenomena i've mentioned uh-huh. love but economic decision making Um, your voting patterns uh, your aesthetic experiences all of these have been subjected um, to neuromaniac investigations and interpretations and it's very widespread it's in the papers
0: all the time isn't it really which is well it annoys me and and it annoyed you enough to write a book about
1: it it did absolutely Um, yes yes and i have to tell you avoiding a a ct scan an mri scan in a broadsheet newspaper now is as difficult as avoiding pictures of topless women in, in, you know, in yeah. tabloids, and I know which one I prefer. I, um, I mean, I, I think
0: you made an interesting point to me, is that you said that the people who say that the mind and the brain are the same thing also say that the mind, the mind is caused by the brain, and of course you can't have, have your cake and eat it in that sense. I mean, what did you mean when you said that? Uh, that's true. It's particularly
1: John Sell, who is a uh-huh. pretty good philosopher, he, he says, for example, yes, of course, neural activity and experiences don't look the same. But let's take the example of water. Right. Water consists of molecules of H2O, right. which aren't shiny and slippery and all those things. But it also is a shiny, slippery substance. They're just the same thing. And what he says is not only are they the same thing, but diff- looked at it different ways, and we've dealt with that earlier on in our discussion, but that the one, the molecules of H2O and their movements, causes the other. Right. Well, I would find it very difficult for something to be the cause of itself. Yeah, Only God God. It, yes. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, okay. God is water. Perhaps that's a proof yeah. that God is water. That would yeah. be a, th- a Thales sort of, yeah, anyway, in-joke. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Listeners, he's talking about an early Greek philosopher who believed that everything was water. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, okay. Uh, this is uh, get to the one perhaps the one area where i disagree with you Mm -hmm. is that you say that the brain is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for consciousness whereas i would say that it's a sufficient but not a necessary condition for consciousness what do you mean when you say that the that that the brain is a a sufficient but not unnecessary but not sufficient condition for consciousness
1: i don't think the standalone brain explains human consciousness the brain has to be embodied and the embodied brain is in not only material world, a biosphere, but in that human world, the world of meant meanings, of interacting selves and others, that actually this is what makes up human consciousness. At any given time we are addressed to and are addressed by this complex world. And you have to you can't just as it were partial off the contents of the brain. So you don't like this
0: brain-in-the-vat thought experiment whereby you say, look, if you took your brain out and rewired it to a computer, a la the Matrix, then uh, they could put inputs through and you w- you'd appear to be in a world, but you're not actually in a world. Why don't you like that sort of thought experiment?
1: What's wrong with that? Well, I think the thought... I love that thought experiment because <coughs> it shows the barrenness of the mind-brain identity theory. It right. shows the barrenness of the idea that a standalone brain could generate consciousness. And why is, why is it such a good experiment? Because the brain in the vat requires a whole world of people who are not brains in vats to sustain it. It requires a laboratory, it requires a body of knowledge, and so on and so forth. Right.
0: I mean, I, I would make the distinction here, I mean, st- sorry for slipping into jargon temporarily, uh, listeners, but I would make the distinction between what, what Aristotle called the material cause and the efficient cause of the state of the brain. In other words, we need the outside world to inform us, but the way the world, the brain is at any one given point in time, sh- is in my mind enough
1: to make the mind. What, would you disagree with that? I would disagree with it very profoundly because I mean I, I think you put your finger on it inadvertently very well that neuroscience's deals with efficient causes, immediately preceding causes, and that, that means things happening through time to make something come about. To those who don't know, and can I give you an example where where what you say is particularly uh, appropriate? Uh, many of your listeners may have heard of some famous experiments by a chap called Benjamin Libet. Yeah. Uh, 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 Libet uh, caused a great stir in the 80s, and a lot his work has been reproduced since, and it's more sophisticated technologies have reproduced his findings. He took a bunch of subjects, and he asked them to do something very simple. He asked them just to cock their wrist. Yeah. That's all he had to do, a very simple movement. And he asked them also to time the moment when they felt the intention, the urge to cock their wrist. They could do it by looking at a a moving spot on a clock. What he found was that the readiness potential in the brain, which was an indication of someone prepared to move their wrist, occurred about a third of a second before they timed their intention to move. And he said, gosh, that means actually we don't initiate our actions. We're not the source of our actions. Our brain calls the right, shots, sure. and all we do is rubber stamp them. Right. So we don't have free will. We can stop it happening. We have free won't. Right. Now, I think this is a good example mm-hmm. of where, as it were, confining your attention to efficient causes run, brings you into trouble. Because let's think of the people taking part in the experiment. Mrs. Smith decides she's going to take part in the experiment. Right. Her action began that morning when she got up to decide to go to Professor Libet's Laboratory. Right. She had to drive the car there. She had to find somewhere to park. She got in a real frazzle because she was late for the experiment. She then had to listen to the experimental uh, design. She had to assent to what was going on. She had to be prepared to move according to his protocol and so on. And in fact, the origin of her action may have lain even further back. She read about a newspaper, Dr. Oh, well, Libet, doing the experiments. She has a child with brain injury and she really, really wants to help those clever scientists improve the, si- improve the outlook uh, for children with brain injury. So let's help Dr. Libet. In other words, her action, this little action of movement, is actually part of an incredible network, uh, an intentional field, as I call it, right. which is go far beyond the efficient cause immediately prior. To the movement of the hand. So I'm very glad you gave that distinction because I think it puts the handle, the finger on, what is uh, wrong about the neuroscientific approach to consciousness and to conscious intentions and so on. Okay, um, we're just going to ask maybe a couple more questions on this. Um,
0: you say that the mind and brain are two different types of things. This to me indicates your view is a variety of dualism, which for the sake of listeners, me- is a philosophy that means there's two distinct types of things in the world, the mental and the physical. Yet in aping mankind, you repeatedly distance yourself from the dualism of Descartes. What's the difference between his type of dualism and yours? Or if your
1: position isn't dualist, what is it? I don't know what my position is. And In the last chapter of the book, I talk about all the alternatives. Supposing you say that mind is not identical with neural activity in the brain... Which is what we're both saying, I Which think. we're both saying. You can develop a kind of metaphor, a computational metaphor and say the mind is the software and the hardware of the mind. brain or the wetware of the brain because neurons are wet but that doesn't work for all sorts of reasons I explain in the book the computational theory of mind is even more bankrupt than the identity theory of mind we do run into difficulties and I think it would be one I do believe that Cartesian dualism the idea that we are ghosts in the machinery of our bodies is just as bankrupt as materialism okay. so w- where do we go from here? Well, you don't think that uh, that your choices as a
0: person can influence the states of your brains, which um, I think is what Cartesian
1: dualism really amounts to. Well, Cartesian dualism, I think, talks about a mental substance interacting with a physical substance. I'm not too sure I quite map my own sense of my agency on that sharp division between the mental and the physical. Okay. Uh, I mean... I clearly have an intuition that I am this object, and this object is me, and it is infused with first-person being, and that first-person being is the origin of my actions. But I wouldn't describe that as, as it were, my mind having a lever on the machinery of the brain. So you don't make a
0: sharp distinction between the the mental and the physical as much as you seem to be uh, promoting in your book?
1: I think I am. All I'm saying is that, 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 that... a certain way of looking at things is wrong right. and I think they're equally wrong. Dualism and materialism a la neuromania, both are equally wrong.
0: Okay, but for different now, reasons.
1: Yes, now people have tried to say, okay, where do we go from here? And a lot of philosophers recognise that. I'm not alone in recognising right. both the bankruptcy of dualism and the materialist monism, as sure. it were. Uh, some have talked about supersizing the mind, like Andy Clark and so on, and uh, as we are reinserting the brain into the body and into the material environment. This is a- all metaphors, I, I imagine it is possibly a sort of metaphor yeah. yeah others have appealed to as it were the new physics of matter to say that matter is not so pebbly and hard as it yeah. was it's you know it's become uh, much more ghostly there's ghosts in the atoms yeah i don't f- you know quantum mechanics and so on i found that unhelpful because quantum mechanics applies to absolutely everything thoughts and pebbles yeah. and i i'm trying to find the difference between a thought and a pebble
0: sure um uh, we can do quantum mechanics another time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay.
1: Well, we're going to so, have a. Sorry. So, I was going to say. So I mean, the result of which I'm an ontological agnostic, and for okay. your for your listeners, that means I'm somebody who doesn't know whether there is only one kind of fundamental stuff in the world, or two, or three, uh-huh. or indeed, if there is only one, what that kind of thing is. Okay. Okay,
0: uh, we're going to go into uh, another song now, just before we go into uh, the Darwinitis section of the book. This is At the Zoo by uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Someone
2: told me it's all happening at the zoo I do believe it I do believe it's true <laughs> It's a light and tumble journey from the east side to the park Just a fine and fancy ramble to the zoo But you can take it across town bus if it's raining or it's cold And the animals will love it if you do all at the zoo. I do believe it. I do believe it's true. Mm-hmm. 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 The monkeys stand for honesty. Giraffes are insincere. The elephants are kindly, but they're dumb Orangutans are skeptical of changes in their cages And the zookeeper is very fond of wrong Seekers are reactionaries on are missionaries Visions locked in secrecy And hamsters turn off yeah, I'm still out I so
0: Hi, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you'll listen to the Philosophy Now radio show. I'm here with Professor Ray Tallis, and we're discussing his new book, Ape in Mankind. Now uh, we're going to home in on the Darwinitis aspect of the uh, book, which is uh, the common attempt these days to reduce human being into mere animality. uh, Or to explain human behaviour in precisely the same way that animal behaviour is explained in. First of all, I want to ask uh, Professor Tice: what damage could an overly
1: Darwinian image of human beings do for us collectively or for our personal behaviour, do you think? Two sorts of damage. One is it could be an idea that's entertained but only frivolously and not seriously, but it gets in the way of thinking seriously about ourselves. And I suppose most people who say we are animals, just like people who say my brain maybe do it, they don't really, really believe it. But there are some serious thinkers who actually do feel uh, that uh, Darwin has shown that we are animals and uh, that our minds serve evolutionary success, not truth, and that we are incorrigible. John Gray, for example, speaks of us as homo rapians. We were forged in the bloodbath of uh, natural selection, and we continue the bloodbath with better tools. So that okay. kind of pessimism, which can be seriously self-fulfilling.
0: Right. Um, so the question is, I guess, why should we believe that human beings are not merely animals and that our um, minds are not just fancy animal minds with the added complication of language?
1: Or what mm. is the fundamental one thing that distinguishes humans from animals? I mean, first of all, it follows from neuromania. Yeah. Dominitis follows from neuromania. Right. I mean, if the mind is the brain, and the brain, as it surely is, is an organ that evolved to promote survival or the replication of our genes, mm-hmm. then, of course, the mind must be of the same ilk. So, uh, diamonditis uh, follows from um, uh, fr- fr- from neuromania. Now, um, basically, you ask, what is, what is the fundamental difference between us and other animals? Uh, I would say all you've got to do is to think about an hour in the jungle. Right and an hour in, let us say, an operating theatre or a library. And you can see those differences are wall to wall. So I always think it's a mistake to look for our differences on either high-end things, like doing symphonies or writing poems and so on and so forth, or to see our differences uh, in um, a particular function. And you mentioned language. I think language is only possible for something as much more ubiquitous and different which is the fact we are explicit animals we make things explicit meaning what sorry uh, that is to say we are aware that things are the case in the way that other animals are and this is quite a difficult idea we have what i call propositional awareness uh-huh. all animals are sentient they have the feelings sensations and so on or we have some a, of them are indeed i beg your pardon. you're quite right i'm sure there are lowly beasts that uh, have no sensations at all But we are different. We have a sense that things are the case. And that's most obvious in our knowledge. Knowledge isn't a property of my body. Knowledge is something we have in common. It belongs to the community of minds. And this sense of propositional awareness is the diffuse difference between us and other animals. Is it like an extension of self-awareness? I'm sure it's deeply related to it. Uh Because... We are, whereas other animals are organisms, mm-hmm. and our bodies, if you like, we are embodied subjects. Mm-hmm. We have a sense that we are. We have a biographical sense of ourselves. We lead our lives rather than merely organically living them. And, of course, we have a sense of others at, at those levels as well. And it's in, th- in the interaction between our explicit sense of ourself, our explicit sense of others, and our explicit sense of material world that is other than us. That is really where our fundamental difference lies. We're not dissolved like soluble fish into the sea of the environment. Okay. We're precipitated at it by our sense of ourselves. Okay. Um, I, for a long time, thought that the difference is that human beings are capable of abstract thought whereas other animals are not. Would, would you think that's a fair thing to say? or would you just I think that is about? just one manifestation uh-huh. of this more diffuse thing. And, of course, there are other more obvious manifestations. If you look at, say... Uh, behavior which is often human behavior is often described in animal terms like feeding behavior or learning let's just focus on those two our feeding behavior is totally different from that of other animals let me take an, an example um, you invite me out for a meal Okay. and I've learned recently that you've just bought a house which has turned into a great mound of negative equity I know you're paying for the meal so I falsely declare I'm full after the first course I said I don't want a pudding thank you That's feeding behavior. Mm -hmm. There is no comparable feeding behavior. It's not the same as one one chimp giving the other a banana. And then you look at what happens at the table. All the instruments that bring together, uh, that are evident in the laid table, all the rituals that surround feeding and eating, the very process of cooking, the fact that we have a grammar of what goes with what. So our feeding behavior is so unlike that of animals. Okay,
0: but I mean, I suppose... One might get the impression that you're saying that the difference is one of merely complexity of behaviour. I mean, but I don't think you'd say that's
1: right. What, what would be wrong with that idea? It's a question of what underlies the complexity. Uh-huh. And what underlies the complexity is this totally different kind of consciousness that I've been alluding to.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, this is quite well illustrated by something, say, learning behaviour. Right. You know, a cow wanders across a field and puts its bottom against electric wire and gets a terrible shock and never returns to that spot. Right. Days of the cow are shown learning behaviour. Right. I decide I'm going to improve my chances in my life next year. I'm going to get a degree. In order to be able to do that, I have to find, make friends with various people in the babysitting circle so I can stockpile some tokens. Uh-huh. Now, that also is learning behaviour, but you can see it's totally different. It's a very complex chains of practical reasoning underpinned by an explicit sense of the necessary conditions of what I've got to do. Quite different. Mm, so it's ours. all underpinned by this...
0: This sense of awareness of that you're a being,
1: and that thing, that things are, and that I am, and and it, it, when we talk about Heidegger's famous description of of, of something similar to itself, das I, it says that being whose being is an issue for itself, and we live biographically, we uh, and, and both uh, our, our present tense is rooted in a past that makes it intelligible and a future that gives us purpose in a very explicit way. Okay. Um, so what would you say was
0: the event or set of events in our past w- whereby humans became distinct from all other
1: animals? Mm. This is where the just-so story is coming, uh-huh. does not it? Because um, I think if I'm a good Darwinian, right. but I reject Darwinitis, I've got to find a biological way by which we escape from biology. What were our properties that enabled us to suddenly take a totally different path from all other beasts? And to that extent, uh, I'm not too heterodox. The first thing is the hand, which has completely different properties in Homo sapiens compared with other primates, opposable thumb and so on. Right. And it's the hand that turns our body into an instrument, gives us a sense of agency, makes us a conscious agent. And it's the hand, the tool of tools. How does it do that? I mean, surely you're not presupposing consciousness for the hand. Not the hand in itself, but our use of the hand, the way we use our hand. The fingers address each other in quite a different way right. from they do in, in other primates. They don't have fully, full opposability. The versatility of the human hand gives you what I call constrained manipulative indeterminacy, All right. which is something which already gives the inkling of a tool. And as Aristotle said, you see, I've stolen my ideas from a long way back, okay. Aristotle took both of the hand as the tool of tools. And that is the origin of our technology. Or people talk of animal tool use, but look at a chimpanzee, poor, bless yeah. its cotton socks. Five million years ago, the height of its technology was to smash a, uh, you know, a nut open with a stone. Yeah. What is the height of its technology at the moment? To smash a nut open with a stone. Well, at least they're consistent. Huh? Exactly. So, so hands, the upright position, which changes our relationship, uh, gives the vision a dominance over all the other senses, okay. which is an uncoupled sense, enables us to interact with the world from outside And a variety of other things. These are the biological things that took us over the threshold from intermittent self-consciousness of, say, gorillas, Uh to sustained self-consciousness and ultimately selfhood.
0: Okay, and then from the self-consciousness, all the other propositional attitudes and that sort of thing follows. Now, evolutionary psychology—that's very popular. What's wrong with evolutionary psychology, apart from the obvious tendency to overinterpret its theories?
1: Well, I think it um, is just approximately. Uh, perhaps half a million years out of date. In other words, it it, it looks to our primate cousins to try and understand ourselves, but I've already given you good reasons why there's clear blue water going wider and wider between ourselves and the other beasts. Of course, some um, biologists... Do recognize there is a huge gap between us and other beasts, and they try and fill it with some landfill called memes right yeah yeah you 've got yeah. a, quite a good critique of memes yes in uh, and, and uh, anybody who believes in memes, I would beg them to read the page i 've written memes, and yeah. I think they will stand up no longer believing in them yeah. well,,
0: yeah, so last, I mean I guess the last question I want to ask you is what 's the most common criticism people have leveled at you concerning the ideas of apeium mankind since it came out, and how would you counter them?
1: <laughs> it or them. I mean, so far, I haven't had seriously hostile reviews. I haven't yeah. been ambushed by unexpected arguments. right um, Most people simply reaffirm their position. Of course, we're mm-hmm. animals. Of course, the mind is the brain. Where else would you expect yeah, to find I, the yeah, mind?
0: I've, I've heard a couple of uh, interviews and I've found that they've, they've tried to counter you without actually addressing your arguments.
1: That must make you really annoyed. It does, rather. Um, but, you know, well, if one's fighting for the sake well, of truth, you know, one's willing to put up with any, any amount of hardship. Can.
0: Okay, um, so that's um, A.P. Mankind. Unfortunately, we haven't really got time to go into any uh, any more detail. I mean, there's a lot more that could be said. Um, So um, what might your next book be about, uh, having covered these ideas so
1: extensively, uh, Professor Tulles? I think we need to look at consciousness anew. We need to look at the relationship between consciousness and the material world. And one of the interesting things is that consciousness is tensed. It has a past, present, and future. And there are no tenses in the material world. So the book I'm writing at the moment is called Of Time and Lamentation, which is about restoring tense to time and looking how tense to time may be one pathway of understanding our distance from the material world without Uh, getting, as you were, dualist about it. Okay, so that that will probably make a whole programme in itself. Um, Yes, please. (laughs)
0: OK, so I've been talking to Professor Ray Tallis, and his book is called "Aping Mankind: Neuromania, Darwinitis and the Misrepresentation of Humanity." Uh, my book is called "The Meta-Revolution," and uh, you'll be, uh, after you've heard this on Resonance FM, you'll also be able to hear this as a podcast on the Philosophy Now re- website, which is philosophynow.org. Thank you for listening and, and keep, your, keep your eyes open for further uh, programs in the Philosophy Now Radio show.